This is a Claymore, the classic sword of the Scots. When I was in the motherland, I got to visit a place called Culloden. It's a battlefield where many civil wars took place between clans, but also uh, some Scottish wars of independence against the English. And there's a, a museum there. And there's some skeletons in that museum. And all of those skeletons died in the same way. They were all basically cut in half from clavicle to pelvis. Because apparently they didn't use their shield of faith. It's okay. You like my touch to Manny? Added that there. As I looked at these skeletons, I, I realized, man, you really needed to know how to wield this thing. Your very life depended on it. Charles Spurgeon says, to be a Christian is to be a warrior. And if you've heard over the last three weeks that spiritual warfare is a fact. Ephesians 6.12 says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These words, powers, principalities, we don't hear those very often. Paul gives us a good idea of what he means when he uses these. In Romans 8.38, he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers will Separate us from the love of God. Ephesians chapter 1, he says, Christ, when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And my favorite, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So it's clear from our text that we are not to attempt to compromise with the enemy. We're not given orders to find means of a truce. We're also not supposed to stay neutral or not take a side. And hopefully you don't think that this battle will be won by accident. We must take the sword. Can you say, take the sword? Take the sword. Hopefully something's been very clear over the first three weeks that Paul is not calling the believer to enter into spiritual warfare. He is informing the believer that he is already in a battle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Again, spiritual warfare is a fact. And the proper response to being in a war is to protect yourself and to arm yourself with a weapon. Now, you've already heard about the shield of faith, the helmet of Salvation and the breastplate of? Hey, y'all took some notes. I like note takers. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, there is only one mention of a weapon. 
The other five items are defensive in nature. And I don't think that that was an accident. I think that Paul wanted us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have only one weapon against the powers and principalities of this world. And that is the word of God. You cannot outsmart powers and principalities, even if you went to Harvard. You cannot physically fight the prince, principalities and powers, even if you go to Gold's Gym every day. I've seen some of you there. You cannot intimidate them. You can try to yell at them, but that doesn't work. You can't outrun them, and you cannot keep silent and hide. But you know what you can do? Ephesians 6 tells us to take up the sword. To take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. We must take this up. We must be familiar with it. We must know how to use it. If you know me, I'm going to set this down. Thing's a monster. If you know me, I am quite fond of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Don't have enough time to explain what that is. But some of you might know what the first question is. So the question is, what is the chief end of man? Anybody know the answer to that one? The chief end of man is? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because I want to keep today's topic in perspective. That above all, we are here today to glorify God. That is why you were created. That's why we exist. That's why all this is here is for his glory. But also we are to enjoy him. Anyone here genuinely enjoy the Lord? I think it's one of the greatest things a mature believer can do for a younger believer is to teach them how to really enjoy the Lord. And I'm going to talk about that later. But many know that first question of the catechism, but do you know the second one? The second question says, what rule has God given us to direct us how to glorify and enjoy him? And the answer is the word of God. And the Old and New Testament is the only rule given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So my hope for you today when you leave this place is that you know that you can trust this. You know that this truly is the word of the Almighty God. We use words in church like inerrant, infallible, inspired. You know, not that long ago, it was a common understanding that the Bible was the word of God and that we could trust it. But today, everything is under scrutiny, right? People say the Bible has changed, it's been manipulated over time, that man has messed it up that it can't be trusted. Our culture says things like, there is no absolute truth. Believe whatever seems right to you, right? You do you. There are as many truths as there are individuals. Or to follow your feelings. Trust your heart, be true to yourself. Yuck. Concerning the Bible, I read things like the Bible's full of contradictions, historical errors, plagiarism, meaningless prophecies, divinely ordered atrocities and genocide. There is no honor 
for the word of God. It is mocked and tossed aside. And if that's true, then Paul said it well, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. He said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are above all men to be most pitied. Like any good sermon, I got three points today, all right? So number one is that not all swords are the same. Number two is to pick a good sword. And number three is to know how to use that sword, all right? So if you're a note taker, that's three ahead of time, all right? So then you can listen. So number one, not all swords are the same. So I was curious. I Googled how many types of swords are there. Wow. Uh, there's a photo that's going to come up, but I'm just going to read a few to you. There's the arming sword, the kurtana, the long sword, the back sword, the falchion, the estoc, the claymore, the paramarion, the sea, the viking sword, the zwiehander, the cutlass, rapier, saber, epier, and the foil. And that's not even all the types of swords in Europe. There's a lot. And hopefully if you haven't noticed yet, we're making a connection today between a literal sword and the word of God. But we're not alone in this world. There are many holy scriptures in this world. Which one is right? Is there a truth? Is what Jesus said true? I am the way, the truth, the life. Yeah, Buddhism, you have the Dhammapada. In Taoism, you have the Tao Te Ching. In Hinduism, you have the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Rig Veda. We have the Quran in Islam. We have the Torah and the Talmud of Judaism. And that's just the top five religions in the world. There are so many religious texts out there. So how can we know? How can we know which one is real, which one we can trust? Obviously, we don't have time today to go over every single one of them, but I will go over this one because this is the one that we put our hope in. Do I have any nerds in the audience? It's okay. I was, not only was I a math teacher, I was also a chess coach. Like that's double black belt nerd, right? <laughs> so I'm gonna tell you what I know about this. So this Bible contains 66 books written in three languages over a period of 1,500 years by dozens of authors writing in numerous genres to diverse audiences, and somehow it all tells the same story. It's also the greatest selling book of all time. Did you know that? They just stopped listing it because it wins every year. Um, the 66 books contained here are called the canon, C-A-N-O-N, which is derived from the Greek word canon, you were hoping for a really cool word, weren't you? Sorry. And canon means a straight staff or a measuring rod or a measure of truth or beauty. Now, the Hebrew canon, which we would call the Old Testament, so roughly about two-thirds of your Bible, it originally contained 24 books, which contained all of the 39 that we have. Just for the Hebrews, they combined some things. So like First and Second Kings is one book or Ezra and Nehemiah is one book together. But it's the same books that we have. Now, personally, I've never met someone that would approach a Jew and say, hey, the Hebrew scriptures are not authentic. They can't be trusted. 
Most people don't argue about that. They'll argue more about the New Testament. But 100 years ago, there were some naysayers in the educational community who claimed that the scriptures had been changed over time, that they've been manipulated by man to say what they want to say so that you can control people better. But if you never heard, all of that was dispelled in 1947 in Qumran on the other side of the planet on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. A Bedouin shepherd boy had to go to the bathroom and he found a nice cave to go to the bathroom. So he threw a rock in the cave to make sure there was nothing in there that could eat him. And he heard some pottery break. So he went and got his dad. They went and checked out these parchments that they found in the cave and Shepherds don't make a lot of money, so they thought, man, maybe we could go to the market and sell these and make some money. So they did that. They took it to the local market out in the middle of the desert. You can Google Earth Qumran and see what it looks like. <laughs> it, it's just sand, right? So they're in this local market trying to sell this in 1947. There's no uh, uh, marketplace. That's not a thing, right? No Facebook marketplace. So you you got to go. So they have these there, and they just so happen to be on that day, in that market, on that side of the planet, the most world-renowned archaeologist and Hebrew expert said, where did you get these? And so over the next couple of years, they found hundreds of manuscripts of the Old Testament in these caves, dating back to 100 B.C. Every single book from the Old Testament was contained in these jars, except for Esther. Sorry, ladies. There was even a fragment there that some scholars would say belonged to the Gospel of Mark. And when these 2,000-year-old manuscripts were analyzed, this was the chance to prove the skeptics right. Look how much it's changed. Look at all these changes that have happened. Look how the Bible has been manipulated compared to what they had then. But guess what? Short story, no. Sure, there was uh, some punctuation differences. Sure, there was a number or two transposed. But it showed us the tremendous attention to detail and the passion for God's word that God's people have had generation after generation after generation. I've seen these Dead Sea Scrolls. They're pretty incredible. Uh, I saw them on display in Houston a long time ago. There's an Isaiah scroll that's 30 feet long. Obviously, you're reading from right to left. You can see right there in chapter 9. For unto us a child is born. And further on down in chapter 53, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of peace is upon his shoulders. And by his stripes we are healed. Amen. And because of this evidence, we can use words like inerrant. There's no reason to believe that the Bible has been changed because it's been copied over time. Obviously, we read Jesus' words. He believed in the Old Testament. He quoted it all the time. The Apostle Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. He quoted it all the time. He even said to his disciple, Timothy, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. And he's talking about the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And even the early church, that first century church, this is what they had. When they went out to preach, they didn't have John 3.16. It's not a thing. They were able to preach the everlasting gospel from 
the Old Testament scriptures. Now, all right, you might be saying, okay, great for the Old Testament. Um, what about the New Testament? Can we trust the New Testament? How were these 27 books selected to be in the canon? And the answer is actually quite simple. That there was a council in a town called Laodicea. There was actually many councils, but this is the main one referenced. In 363 AD, lots of godly men who probably didn't spend their days watching Netflix. These are our church fathers, devoted to much prayer, full of the Holy Spirit. But they had really one major criterion for selecting what was going to go in here, and I've been working on this word, apostolicity. It's a tough one. And let me clarify what that means. So say the Gospel of Matthew is written by Matthew. Matthew was one of the 12 apostles. The Gospel of Mark, written by Mark, who was... Peter's right-hand man, who was an apostle. Luke, written by Luke, who also wrote Acts, and he was the right-hand man of Paul, who was an apostle. Gospel of John, written by John, who was an apostle. Thirteen epistles of Paul, written by Paul, who was an apostle. Hebrews, written by probably a close friend of Paul's. We'll say that. I know you were wanting me to say something definitive there, but I wasn't going to say it for you true nerds. Um, James, the brother of Jesus, also called an apostle. First and second Peter, written by Peter, who was an apostle. First, second, and third John, written by John, who was an apostle. Jude, the brother of James and Jesus, who was an apostle. And then Revelation, written by John, who was an apostle. Are you seeing what I'm saying? The reason for choosing these was people who had a firsthand account of God being born in the flesh. But people ask all the time, well, do we actually have like the first copy, like the letter to the Galatians in Paul's handwriting? Or do we have John's gospel or revelation written in John's handwriting on that parchment? No, we don't have that. <laughs> so why, how can we can claim the authenticity of the New Testament? How can we be absolutely sure? Now there is this term that is accepted all over the world called textual criticism. Now, I'm a math nerd, this is getting into language for me, but if I can do it, you can do it. Now textual criticism looks at a text to see how it's changed from the earliest copies you have until now. And so there's really two things it looks at. How much time has passed between when the actual events happened and then when they were written down and then how many copies of these manuscripts do you have? So those are two big things. Anyone ever had uh, Aristotle? You had to read Aristotle in school? Everybody, anybody ever heard of Aristotle? Maybe? All right. Aristotle, we have around 1,000 manuscripts of his original works. His books were written between 384 and 322 B.C. But the earliest copy we have of any of his works is from 850 A.D. Some quick math there. That's about 1,200 years that passed by. Do you think anything could have happened to those texts in 1,200 years? But do you ever hear anybody question the authenticity of Aristotle? No. What about Plato? Anyone forced to read Plato in college? Maybe a little bit. Same issue, we have about 210 manuscripts from Plato, but there is a 1,200 year gap 
from when Plato lived to the earliest manuscripts we have. Do you think something could have happened? Probably. Does anyone ever question Plato? No. I know in high school I was supposed to read the Iliad and the Odyssey. <clears throat> Same issue. The earliest copy we have of the Iliad and the Odyssey is from 400 B.C., but the actual Trojan Wars happened closer to 800 B.C., a 400-year gap. But have you ever heard anyone question Homer? No. So by these same standards, let's take a look at the New Testament. How many manuscripts of the New Testament do we have? Around 25,000. Far more than any of these other books. And the earliest copies we have are from 117 A.D., which is about 25 years after the events actually took place. Not 400 years, not 1,200 years, 25. But do you ever hear anyone question the authenticity of the Bible? Yes. All the time. Though God owes us no explanation, he made sure that even his word knocks it out of the park according to man's criterion. It still wins. It exceeds everything. So even though they are many swords, not all swords are the same, obviously this is the sword that we will use, will continue to use, and I can tell you definitively, you can trust it. It has not changed. There's no reason for us to believe that. So yes, you can trust this one. All right, they're gonna put up a picture on the screen. Any 80s babies in here? All right. Christmas 1986 was a big deal for me. I got my Nintendo Entertainment System. In 1987, The Legend of Zelda came out. Big deal. Now, even when I was seven years old, I thought it was kind of lame that Link had a wooden sword. It's like, dude, a wooden sword? And, but they, they had a plan, right? You get through the first couple castles, and you level up, and you get to the noble sword, which is kind of nice. And you felt even better. Like, remember, you could throw that thing if you had full hearts, and then magically you had another one. It was pretty cool. But then you upgraded eventually to the master sword, and you just felt invisible, like, Ganon, bring it on. I have no idea what that has to do with my message, but <laughs> anyone ever been to Barnes & Noble lately or gone online and tried to shop for a Bible? Oh, my. It's tough. And I, my guys in my small group, they, they see the one that I have, and they're like, man, I'm looking for one. I'm just not sure what to look for. And I, there are so many versions out there. I'm a big fan of the Blue Letter Bible app. There's a website and the app. And even on there, the versions that you can choose from to read. I mean, you got the King James, New King James, NIV, ESV, CSB, NLT, NASB, RSV. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And then, anyone ever get into study Bibles? Wow. I did a quick search. There's the Amplified, the Chronological Study Bible, Annotated, the ESV Study Bible, the ESV Women's Study Bible. The Fire Bible, Jeremiah Bible, Keyword Study Bible, Life Application, and the New Spirit-Filled Life Study Bible. Where do you start? What are you going to do? So I wanted to get a little bit of practical with you. If you are a newer believer, if you are new to the faith and, and you are thinking about buying something, 
We always have some free Bibles in the back. You are welcome to grab one of those. But if you're going to go get something, my recommendation to you is to get something in modern English. Okay? King James is great. You ever run into like those King James only people? They're hilarious. I love them. Have a conversation with them. They're great. But if you're buying your first Bible, I probably wouldn't go with that one. It was written in 1611. People talked just a little bit different back then. So go with something like a new King James. That's typically what we put up on the screen here. Or an NIV or an ESV or something like that. Now what about study Bibles? Do I recommend a study Bible? I do. I have one. This is an ESV study Bible that I love. And it's funny, and the guys in my own small group, I think like five of them have the same Bible now. Um, so I can just be like, hey, turn to page 943. And it works. But I got to say something. I'm going to hold this up as an example here. So this part is God's word. This part is not. All right? Now, the people that wrote this part, they're probably smarter than me and you. They went to school for a long time. They really, really, really know their Bible and their history and their culture. But this is the word of man. This is the opinion of man. And this is God's word. So when you're reading your Bible, please know that. Don't, don't think that they're equal. Let God's word be God's word and man's be man's. Now, I also would recommend you not be the kind of person that you sit down, all right, you ordered your brand new study Bible, and you're like, all right, where do I start? And you just set your Bible down and be like, all right, we'll go there. Probably not a good idea. There are so many reading plans out there. I myself, I do a chronological reading plan. It helps me get through the Bible in a year, every year. And it's really about three chapters a day, which is about 15 minutes, and I'm a slow reader. But 15 minutes is not that bad. But it's really going through that plan has given me a better understanding of the entire thing. Now, I know there's some, I think probably the saddest thing I hear. Some people be like, well, I get the verse of the day emailed to me and then they explain it to me. And I think that's kind of nice. Again, that's one verse out of context and then someone else is telling you what it means. That will never, ever, ever replace you reading this day after day after day and even committing this to memory. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but to truly know all of it. And I know some of you have your Bible on your phone. I'll be nice. <laughs> it's better than nothing. I'll say that. But those of you that have a Bible that you've just marked up all over the years, you know what I know. There's nothing better than having this so close to you all the time. Like it is yours, it is alive to you, it changes you. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, most of you probably know, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So not only is this the sword among many swords, but if you're buying one, pick a good one, okay? And put it to good use, read it. But the last point, to know this, would you take a moment and turn to Psalm chapter 1?
Psalm chapter 1. David says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. I want to be that man. There's a couple words in here, though, I want to highlight. That first word, blessed, blessed. Best translation is happy. Might make you think of Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, right, when Jesus said, blessed are you, blessed is he. I think from front to back in this Bible, when blessing is brought up, it really means that God's favor is upon you. Anybody desire that for you? David makes it plain, if you want it, you read it. You hide it in your heart, you meditate on it. He uses the word delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And the best translation for delight is to take pleasure in. Now, we, as Christians, we try not to use that word. Like, pleasure is kind of a pagan word. <laughs> we kind of stay away from that. David did not. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 16 Verse 11, David says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At God's right hand. Now, if you don't know, King David was alive much earlier on than when Christ came in the flesh. But even then, who is at God's right hand? At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The best life, the best life that we can have is with God, in his presence, in his word. David also uses the word meditate. We kind of stay away from that word too, don't we? That's like a weird Eastern thing, right? But in the Hebrew, it carries an image with it. And there's an image of a lion with his kill and he's just chewing on it, and he's growling, and it's like, you stay over there, I've got mine, go find your own, and there's like just this groaning and growling, and that's probably the best translation is to groan and to growl and to chew slowly, and that's what David is saying to do. It says on his law he meditates day and night, and I love that he says you'll be like a tree that yields its fruit in its season. Now, if you've ever owned a fruit tree, Let's pretend I have an apple tree here. Now, if an apple tree produces apples, do you go up to it and just pat it on the back and be like, good job, apple tree? You don't do that because that's what the apple tree is supposed to do. Right? It's supposed to produce apples. And David's saying that here. If you dive into his word and you meditate on it day and night, you will do what you were designed to do. What God has created you to do, you will do. It's going to happen. Now, side note, if this apple tree ceases to produce apples, what do I do with it? I chop it down, and I use it in my smoker with some baby back ribs and <laughs> pulled pork. Last word there, he says, in all that he does, he prospers. Does this mean monetarily? No. Maybe. 
I often think of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He makes this long list of all the terrible things he's been through, from beatings and shipwrecks and the 40 lashes minus one and being in prison. And there's so many of these letters that he wrote from prison, in chains, not knowing when he's going to get out. And I think if you were to ask Paul, hey, Paul, did you live a prosperous life? I think he'd say, yeah. He'd probably give that an amen. Now, hiding God's word in your heart takes some effort, not just reading, but may I also recommend doing some memorizing. When I was in Gateway School Ministry, there were 50 verses we had to memorize, which is tough, man. I'm getting older and the brain doesn't, eh, it's getting there. But uh, I used something, I, just to be very practical with you, they're going to put a little picture of it, but there's an app out there called the Verse Locker. Great app. You can enter in verses in multiple ways to memorize things, but I got to tell you, as I was memorizing things and the more things I got in there, I felt like the Spirit was kicking the, the crud out. And that just during normal moments of the day, these verses would just come into my head or I'd be having a conversation with somebody and this verse would pop up and be like, whoa, thank you, Lord. And it's there. You hide it in there. You hide it in your mind and it's there and it kicks out the bad stuff. Start small. Start with Jesus wept. Memorize that one. <laughs> then move on from there. I think one of my favorite ones that I memorized is Psalm 23. It is near and dear to me. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures like a bad dog. Just makes me lie down. So, not all swords are the same. You need to pick a good one. You need to know how to use it. You need to know it. Would you stand with me? Now, if you have a physical Bible, would you hold it? You may not know, there are so many people that have died so that we could do this. There were men that were literally burned alive just to have this translated into the English language so that we could read it in a language we would understand. If you have neglected this sword, would you take a moment and just repent, just between you and the Lord, Apologize to him. Now, if there's been a time in your life when you believe that this was not trustworthy, can we take a moment and just be thankful? Can you thank God? Thank him out loud. Let's get loud in this place. Let's do it. Let's thank God that he has preserved his word for thousands of years that you and I could hold it, that we could have 10 copies of it in our house. May it be precious to you. Now, there was a part of the Ephesians that you might not have caught it says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then it says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And that phrase might be foreign to you. 
to pray in the Spirit. Paul lets us know in a couple different places. In Romans 8, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 1 Corinthians 14, he says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. And in Jude, verse 20, it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Let's take a moment. You can close your eyes, you can lift up your hands, you can drop to your knees, whatever you need to do. And let's pray. You know what our culture is like right now. You know that we are entering to a place that has no absolutes, where people just want to do what they want to do. And it's hard to watch. Join me in prayer that this may be the standard, that this will once again be the canon and the benchmark for our nation, our state, our city, maybe your schools or your, your job or your neighborhood, definitely your own household. Let's pray, let's intercede. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for telling us how to live. Thank you for your wisdom, Lord, that doesn't get old. Thank you, Lord, that you are not far off. Thank you, Lord, that you are near to us. That you fellowship with us, you tabernacle with us. May your word reign supreme in our hearts, in our minds. In Jesus' name.